Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Paul writes, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. He's a Colossian. They will make known to you all the things which are happening here. And Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Anybody expecting children, if you're on the market for baby names, we got some great ones here. The fellow prisoner Aristarchus greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are even in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. Luke, Dr. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Let's pray together. Well, Father, as we are here this morning, certainly for you, We want to come before you to declare that to you, yet also, God, invite you to meet us here with your word now, God, that you would speak to us. That's our prayer, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to us. God, we believe, and we're excited today to even see that even a list of names has been inspired by you and is profitable for us. So we ask, Lord, that just even from this section that we've just read, that, God, you would Bring your word to life. It is living. It is active. Um, So, God, we we just pray that. We ask that wherever Andrew's at in his sermon preparation or whatever I have prepared, Lord, let it all be secondary to the voice of your spirit. So we invite you to speak to us, God. We pray these things with confidence, knowing that you hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the title of my sermon this morning is The Fellow ship. The fellowship. There is a space between that word on purpose. I just want you to know that. And uh, I'm thinking about the people that listen to us on podcasts right now. They're going, what? I know the word fellowship, but these are actually three words. We have the fellow. No, go back. Please, thanks. We have the fellow and ship, okay? So we are, I don't mean to punish you this morning, but um, I do have some puns for you, and they're quite punny. Um, um, but the fellowship, that's what we're getting at. So here in these verses, as Paul is wrapping up this letter that he's written to this new church, as he's wrapping up this letter, we see here in these seven or eight verses that we just read that Paul begins to list all the different casts of characters that are surrounding and supporting him as he is writing this letter, let's be reminded, from prison. Maybe it's something we've forgotten along the way because God has given Paul this incredibly elevated perspective that even while he is in jail suffering for his faith in Christ, he is focused on the well-being of others. He's focused on the, the nature and the condition of the churches. And so reading Colossians, you can so quickly forget that. But the entire time that we've been studying this book, we looked at it at the first teaching. And just to be reminded here at the end, the Apostle Paul is writing this from a dungy 
nasty prison cell. But what we get here in these verses from Paul is Paul reminds us and he lets us know that though he is in that cell, he's not alone. He lists eight different men, his backups, his supporting cast that are accompanying him in his journey of following Jesus. And we saw, again, eight of them. The first guy, great name, Tychicus. You saw him in verse 7. Tychicus joins Paul, we see in the book of Acts, chapter 20. He joins Paul as a new believer, as kind of a support and an apprentice to his ministry, and goes with Paul on many different missionary ventures. And we find out here, as we just read in verse 7, that this guy, Tychicus, would be the person to deliver the letter to the Colossian church um, by hand. He would also be the mailman to the church at Ephesus as well. So this guy is the one who's the delivery man for this letter that Paul's writing. We next meet a guy in verse 9. His name is Onesimus. Onesimus. And we find out about this guy uh, from just Paul here that he's a Colossian native. Now, if we were to just read Colossians, all we would know about this guy Onesimus is that he's one of the Colossians. He's with Paul in Rome, but he says he's one of you. Now, we might look at that and go, oh, okay, he's a native Colossian. But when you read the book of Philemon, you find out a little bit more about this guy, Onesimus. We'll call him Ono, all right? Ono in Philemon is so much more than just a native Colossian. In fact, Paul's saying he, he's one of you. It's more than just he's a native brother. You see, in the book of Philemon, Paul writes a letter to a slave master who's become a Christian. His name is Philemon. And Philemon, he had a runaway slave. His name, Onesimus. And Paul writes to Philemon in the book of Philemon, calling and beckoning Philemon not to welcome Onesimus back as a slave, but to pardon him of his debt, just as Jesus has pardoned Philemon's debt, and to welcome Onesimus now, not as a lower class citizen, but as we are in truth on evil, or on, on equal evil, yeah, we're equally evil, but on equal playing ground. Welcome him back, he says in Philemon, as a brother. So he's saying, I'm sending, I'm with Onesimus, he's one of you. I love that. He's, he's not a slave. In that culture, you were so much, so much of your identity was defined by what you did, your career. And certainly as a slave, that was a, a, a position of inferiority. And Paul is saying, no, this guy's just like one of you, a sinner saved by grace. Amen? And so he says, welcome Onesimus, one of you now. And then he talks about a guy named Aristarchus. Aristarchus is mentioned here. He's also mentioned Acts 20 again alongside Tychicus, another dude who joins Paul's journey. Another gentleman, number four, is a guy named Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, we learn about Mark and his relation to Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15. You guys ever study the, the great division that Paul and Barnabas had over this guy, Mark? Mark, at one point, sort of abandoned Paul along his way. He got cold feet, and he backed out. And so when they were about to get on the boat for another journey, Paul said, listen, no, I saw what this guy did last time. He didn't show up. We're going to go on without him. That was kind of Paul. He was just a real driven dude, about to leave Mark at the bus stop there. And his, we find out his cousin, Barnabas, who was actually Paul's initial mentor, he says, what? No, man. You know, that's that encourager. That's the person in the group who's like, we can't leave them. No one left behind. You know, that's Barnabas. And so Barnabas is like, no, we can't do that, especially because he's my cousin, but, but no, we got to bring him along with us. And it was such a sharp contention, the Bible says. It was such a significant point of division that they couldn't even go forward anymore. And so Paul goes on without Mark and Barnabas because Barnabas stays back with Mark. But isn't it interesting, now that Paul's in prison, 
Isn't it interesting when, when life and the mortality of life comes into perspective, the things that we divide over don't really matter as much anymore? You know what I'm talking about? And so now Mark's like, now Paul's like, I got Mark with me. I'm sure people are like, isn't that the guy you left at the boat stop area, the dock? He's like, yeah, it's him. Yeah, it's him. You know, It's amazing how life and trial and the mortality of life and the finitude of life can cause us to overlook things that we can obsess over and divide over. Next, I love this, in verse 11, we, made a guy, we meet a guy named Jesus who is called Justice. Now, I just got to thinking about this. I just imagined this guy's conversion and his name change, right? Hey, Jesus, um, it's great that you're a Christian now. We're so happy. But we've been talking. We think it may be best, just for our mission, where we're headed, that you change your name because you're, you have the same name as the boss, and it can get a little confusing. You know, every time we pray and we're like, dear Lord Jesus, you always look up, and, <laughs> and it's just, you know, he's, so Jesus, we think, so anyway, they call him, I love that, he's Jesus, but someone made the great executive decision, said, we should call you Justice, okay? <laughs> I love that. Verse 12, we meet a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras, now, do you remember this guy? Maybe a nod of the head if you remember this guy. Anybody remember Epaphras? Who was here in April? Some of you guys, okay. So in April, um, all the note takers, nobody nodded their head. That's depressing, but it's okay. Um, in April, we learned that Epaphras was actually the church planner and the pastor of this church. So this is a guy who threw his discipleship and ministry to Paul. Paul led this guy, Epaphras, to Christ. And this dude, Epaphras, was on this like chain link of Paul's discipleship, and he is sent out, and he plants this church in his hometown of Colossia. Now, Epaphras is now with Paul, and so Paul is saying, listen, I'm vouching for him. He loves you guys as a pastor. He's vouching not just for his gifts, but his character. He has a heart for you as he is with Paul. And then we meet two other guys, Luke, the beloved physician. You guys know Dr. Luke, Dr. Luke. Um, if you didn't know, a little fun fact, Luke, our, one of our, on our worship team, just waved to me. Yes, Luke, you are, you're, you're almost Dr. Luke probably a few more years and, and essays, but um, Dr. Luke, did you know this, that Luke the physician, he's written, he writes, actually, in our Bible, he writes more content than any other contributor to the New Testament. A lot of people say, well, Paul did. Yes, Paul wrote the most books of the New Testament, but Luke wrote the book of, good job, Luke, theologians up in this place, and Luke also wrote the book of, of Acts. We see the acts of Jesus in Luke, and we see the continued acts of the Holy Spirit through the church in Acts. Luke has written more content in the New Testament than any other man. He is, I love this, he's the beloved Luke. You know, and Luke's the guy in the group who's always at the library. You know, he's kind of the bookworm. He's, he, you would imagine, he probably doesn't make the best company. He's always just like, hey guys, I wonder if, we, you know, I just kind of imagine Luke's like, is this the best decision? And but what's awesome is Paul says he's the beloved Dr. Luke. And then, lastly, we meet a guy named Demas. Demas, we'll circle back at this at the end. Demas, we learn in 2 Timothy, though he's a companion of Paul here at the beginning, we learn in 2 Timothy, as Paul is nearing the end of his life and he's listing the people that are with him then a few years later, Paul says, Demas, sadly he'll tell us, has forsaken me, having loved this present world. So here's Demas, starting well, we want to always acknowledge and encourage the importance of finishing well, right? It's not always how you start, it's how you finish. Tortoise in the hair, of course, okay? So here's this amazing group, this surrounding 
cast, the supporting company that Paul has. And now for us, we may look at that and go, okay, cool, Andrew, are you going to close in prayer now? Like, you gave me the background, what's going on here? Now, it may just be, at the onset, a list of names and greetings, because that's also what's going on here. Paul's saying, this is who's with me, but he's also like, he's like, hey, they said hi. You ever had someone say, hey, tell them I said hi. So Paul's passing on their greetings to the church as well, and you may look on and go, yeah, we get it, now what, right? Now, this may just look like a list of names and greetings, but as we look at this in context, as we think about what the Holy Spirit, what God has been teaching us as a church, this section here, it clearly and it practically falls into the category of what we've been learning from Paul even in this chapter. It's been the, two, the past two chapters of Colossians where the Apostle Paul has been encouraging the church to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of God's love through Jesus, to win those that are running from him back to himself through his son Jesus, where Jesus paid the debt for humanity on the cross. He bore our sin on the cross so that we could stand righteous through faith in him. Amen. Okay, good. That's the gospel. We, we trust in him. He was died, buried. He resurrected. That message, we, we, we see in the first two chapters, Paul says it's informative. That's the first thing we see. In, verses, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is talking about how informative the gospel is. We should all not just be recognizers of the gospel, but we as Christians need to always be informed daily about the gospel. I need a regular reminder that Jesus loves me. And not just a mamby-pamby VBS way. I mean, in a way that I understand that despite how fallen and broken and sinful I am and how prone I am to go back to sin, I need to be daily informed by the fact that I am forgiven by Jesus. Anybody else? Good, okay, a couple of you. Good, 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 okay. So it's important to be informed by the gospel. That's chapters one and two. But chapters three and four, what Paul has been showing us is, is that the gospel is not just informative. What God has done through Christ on your and my behalf, and on behalf of the, the Bible says he's the propitiation for the whole world, on behalf of the whole world, it's not just meant to be informative, but it's also meant to be transformative. Not just informative, but also transformative. In fact, the way he says it in Romans is that the gospel, he says, is the power of God unto salvation. That there is this transformative power to the message of God to where to be impacted by it is to be different. It transforms your life. That's a complete gospel. That's a whole gospel. Not just I've been informed about a bunch of information, but that gospel is so good. It's such good news that it's impacted my life so significantly that I can no longer be the same. Even if I still struggle with the same things, even if I still fall short, the gospel's transforming my life, the Bible says, from glory to glory. From glory to glory. That's the best part, too, right? Not, for like, not level one to level two. What level are you at in your transformation? You level 10? Whoa, it's not that. It's not this comparison game. It's God by his spirit is faithful to complete the work he started in all of us. We start at the same place, broken, in desperate need, for, need of God. We actually end up at the same place, broken and in desperate need of God. Yet in the midst of that, as Christians following Jesus, the gospel, God uses his spirit to transform us, to make us different, to make us look more like Jesus from glory to glory. See, that's what we've been studying. And guess what? This section that we just read, this list of names and these greetings, they are a valuable implication. What we just read here is a valuable reminder of what the gospel produces in our lives. And here's what it is today. The gospel produces fellowship. Fellowship. Now, we had the pun originally. Let's just start simple, okay? Fellowship. 
This is one of the things that we see the Apostle Paul uh, giving us a vision of, that though Paul is in prison, he's without a lot of the bare necessities of life. I know you're thinking of the song right now, but don't, okay? But though he's in jail, the one thing that he sees is so valuable. I love the thing. He's saying, listen, here are the people who are with me. You know, it's been said that life is not just about where you're going. It's about who's going with you. Did you know that? Did you know that the quality of your life is not just the direction you're in, but it's who you're taking with you? It's your company, those that you are in fellowship with. So here's Paul in prison, and he's got a lot of reasons to moan and groan and complain, but he talks about how he's been comforted. He's talking about that despite it being kind of hell on earth in this prison, as we would imagine, Paul, he's got fellowship. He's got this gift from God that he's recognizing. Now, the word fellowship, it's certainly one of those Christianese words, a lot of ship words in the Christian language, friendship, companionship, fellowship, relationship, Mayflowership. There's a ton of them, potato ship, okay? There's so many. All these different ship words, but it's a biblical word nonetheless. Let's understand what we mean when we see fellowship. Now, we see fellowship, I think, most beautifully introduced um, in the church in the book of Acts chapter 2. You know, Acts chapter 2 is where we see 3,000 souls be added to the church, right? Through the power of the Spirit, as Peter's preaching the gospel, 3,000 people respond by the Spirit to repent and be baptized, display their faith in Jesus. Now, we tend to focus on those 3,000 individuals, but the book of Acts goes on to say that what God did to save those 3,000 individuals was not simply a separate and distinct event. Those 3,000 individuals became a 3,000-person family, a fellowship. And so Acts tells us that they, those new believers, this is the first church, we're talking about the church in its purest form, its own unique challenges that we see. But nonetheless, in Acts 2, we have a vision of, listen, what we as a church should be after, right? And what we, we say here as a church is that we want to keep Jesus where? At the center, right at the middle. The reason why we have to say that is because we know the natural tendency is to make this thing about other things than Jesus, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's not hard for us to do that, okay? It's not that Jesus ends up at the center incidentally, and then he gets out of the center kind of like purposefully. Oh, no, Jesus, we're pushing you out. It's the other way around, is it not? Oftentimes it's that Jesus, listen, he's not at the center accidentally. It just happens. It's our nature. So we have to be purposeful of making sure that if we're going to do this thing, okay, if we're going to be a church in the 21st century, a community of disciples following Jesus, a man who lived 2,000 years ago that we believe is alive, right? Okay, you with me? We believe he's alive, right? So if we're going to do this thing, if we're going to follow this risen king that we believe in, let's not waste time, right? Let's not waste time playing church games. You got, listen, like we got much better things that you could be doing on Sunday morning. You got your lawn to mow, your sprinklers to fix, soap operas to watch. There's a lot going on on Sunday morning, okay? No, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that if Christianity... If it's, a, if it's a lie, it's of no importance. Like, if Jesus didn't rise, what are we doing, right? But if Jesus did rise from the dead, if he did send his Holy Spirit, if 3,000 people did get saved, then Christianity is of great importance. If Jesus is alive, that changes everything. But I love what he says. He says, the only thing Christianity cannot be is mildly important. It can be false or it could be true. It cannot be somewhere in the middle. He's alive or he's not. So guys, we're all in or we're not. Amen? 
And so as a church, we don't want to be kind of half in, half out. We want to look at things like the book of Acts and go, that's our vision as a church. We're not looking back to what we've done. We're not looking even creatively to what we're going to do. We look into the word of God for our template and our vision. And we see in Acts chapter 2 that this early church, they were committed and devoted to certain things. They were demoted to the, devoted and demoted, Jesus was in charge, but they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, the word of God. We see and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. This was something the early church was dedicated to, this idea of being in fellowship, of not just being a Christian, but being a part of the family of God. The word fellowship, again, one of those Christianese words, it has a lot of different definitions. Um, it's, it's such a unique Greek word that um, there's not even one specific way to, to translate it. It's the Greek word koinonia, uh, Actually, the, the Bible, the New Testament, it's written originally in what's called Koine Greek. Okay? The, the Bible, the, the, the disciples, believe it or not, didn't speak English. Okay? Yo, what's up, Jesus? They didn't, never said that. Never came out of their mouths. Okay? We read a tra- uh, an accurate translation of the Greek, but in the original language, it was called Koine Greek. Koine means common. Common Greek. It was the common tongue. So what Jesus spoke, what the disciples spoke, through Alexander the Great, everybody spoke this language. It was the common language. And this is the same root word of the word fellowship. Common is what it means. It can be translated in so many different ways to talk about something or anything that is shared. Shared. So fellowship, it's like we share our lives. Fellowship, we share our possessions. Fellowship, we share what we're struggling with. Fellowship, the idea is this. What's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. We would say, mi casa es su casa. What we should say is, mi viva es su viva. <laughs> Val, was that proper Spanish or no? No, not even close. I will never do that again, and I just want to promise you that, okay? All right. Shared. Shared. This is the vision of the church. Not a bunch of individuals in their little American lives with their gated communities and their locked doors. Hey, you guys to see you on Sunday. God bless. Going to go away now, okay? The church is a community of redeemed individuals who have been called and set to share their lives together in every and any way. That's the vision of the church. So the early church, they were devoted to this. This was a spiritual discipline, right? We don't list this on the spiritual disciplines, right? Read your Bible, pray, fast. The order here was be rooted in the word of God, but the spiritual discipline of sharing our lives with each other. And that's what we get of Paul. We get Paul in prison sharing his life. And maybe here's a visual that we can think of it. I think the contrast of this is many of us, the reason why we are not sharing our lives is because we don't have a shared life. We have a shelled life. So I thought of that dichotomy. How many of us, the reason why we're not living in fellowship is because we're not sharing our life, we're shelling our life. For whatever reason, we're closed off. For whatever reason, I'm wondering, God, why am I not experiencing all that you have for my life? And the reason is because all that God has for your life is not just found in your life. Much of what God wants to do with your life is found in a shared life with other Christians. Anybody ever found this to be true? It's amazing how God works when we follow him and we share our lives instead of shelling our lives. And that's, what, again, what we see from Paul, this great vision. Um, and also, in the book of Acts, this church that's continuing in fellowship. And I want us to also see 1 Corinthians 1.9. So f- this idea of fellowship is something that we share. It's something that the early church committed to. We should be sharing our lives together, not just our Sunday, but our lives. 
not only because it's what we're called to, but I love the way that Corinthians says it's something we're called into, all right? So it says, God is faithful, Paul writes, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is some theological underpinning. This is some foundational stuff about what God has done in Christ. And this, for many of us, is a rewiring of how we think about our salvation. Christianity, the gospel, is not just that you have been called into a relationship with Jesus. According to God's word, you've also been called into the fellowship of Jesus. It's into a relationship with Jesus, but the cross is not just that you've been reconciled and redeemed to God. The beauty of what God has done through Christ is he's also reconciled us to each other. So now your differences that would lead you apart from Jesus to make your excuses for why you don't share your lives. Oh, my schedule. I'm a little busy. Oh, different personalities. I stay. You're sitting over there. I sit over here. Okay. Our differences, our hobbies, all the superficial things that apart from Jesus would divide us no longer have a voice. Because the way that Jesus has united us, it goes beyond race, it goes beyond age, it goes beyond, it goes beyond even hobbies, recreation, it goes beyond our socioeconomic position. You see, through Christ, we're called into the fellowship of the Son. That's why life, it's not just where you're going, but it's who's going with you. And that's what we see the Apostle Paul describing here. You know, I thought of it this way. Paul is describing, and you saw it earlier in my sermon title, he's describing his fellowship. His fellowship. It's a horrible metaphor that's going to work today to help us understand that we all have in life, you have a fellowship. You have a community of people that God at least has called you to experience and share your life with. So here's the question we want to ask ourselves today. Um, who are you sharing your life with? Or who's in your fellowship? Who are you experiencing life with? Now, the reason why I'm using that word fellowship, did you notice this as we read that list? There's actually three descriptions that Paul gives of these companions, and they all begin with the word fellow. He lists three fine fellows. He lists in verse, let me open my page real quick. He lists in verse seven, he calls them fellow servants. He then says in verse 10, he calls them fellow prisoners. He then says that they're also his fellow workers, fellow servants, fellow prisoners, fellow workers. I would submit to you today that these are three vital and necessary companions to have in your fellowship. We want to seek for God to have these people aboard, so to speak. As we journey through life, let's ask this question. Do you have first, do you have a fellow servant in your life? Do you have fellow servants? Fellow servants. You saw it there in verse 7. Tychicus was a fellow servant. Now, when you look at the life of Paul, you saw how valuable it was for Paul not just to be serving others, but to ensure that as he was pouring out, there were people in his life that could pour in. Maybe you kind of have that. You're a mom, and you're at home most of the week, and most of your life is emptying. It's a lot of withdrawals, okay? Not a lot of deposits, and you reach your max at times, and you're exhausted. Most of us experience that. All of us, let's start, let's start here, all of us are called to this. All of us are called to follow in the example of our master, Jesus, who did not come to be served, but to serve. And so as we follow Jesus, you know what we do? We give our lives just as he gave his life. We serve those around us, those at home, those in our workplace, those in our neighborhood. Everywhere we go, we seek to manifest and bring light to the gospel through the way that we serve. Amen? Serving's valuable. How, how, how valuable is it? You know, we always 
acknowledge it when it's there, but um, I remember the first time I got a glimpse of a servant. Um, it was when I was serving in, I would call it a mission field, you wouldn't, but it was in the Bahamas. Um, and I was there for two years, met Jesus and my wife, best, best time of my life. Um, and while I was there in the Bahamas, there was this guy at the ALC named Tom. And Tom was the kind of guy that everyone just knew, he's a servant. I remember one day we were all heading to the beach, um, and it started pouring raining. We pulled out of the camp, and we're like, we're still going to go for it and go find some shelter somewhere. We just wanted to get out of the, the complex. And this guy's Tom. I remember looking over, and in the pouring rain, he doesn't, you know, he's not looking for anybody else to be around. He's fixing the broken gate in the pouring rain in the middle of a, a Bahamian summer. So it was like humid and hot. I remember looking at that, and there's just something. I just still have that vision in my head. There's something about seeing someone who has a servant heart, isn't it? It's just like, that's what life's about to be like that kind of person. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. And by the way, Jesus said it this way, a servant's not greater than his master. So Christianity is not how high I can get on the totem pole, it's how low can I get to look like Jesus. If you're too big to serve, you're too small to lead. This is the nature of following Jesus. And he set that example. Paul set this example. Paul was a servant. This guy served. He gave his life for the church. We read in 2 Corinthians, he says, man, you were filled up because I was poured out. I became empty so that you could be full. That was his life. It's what we're called to. But listen, that will not last long if you don't have any fellow servants. If all you're ever doing is serving others and no one's ever say, serving you and you're doing it in the name of Jesus, you need to evaluate. It's not Jesus. Jesus would also lead you to do things like mm, take a nap. Thank you, Jesus, right? We follow, G we follow a man who took naps on boats. What are you doing? Following Jesus. <laughs> Taking a nap. We saw this with Jesus. He would exhaust himself serving others, but he would see the value of making sure he got alone with the follower, Father to be refilled. Right? So here's a question. Do you have fellow servants in your life? As you're serving, as you're pouring out, here's a question. Who is pouring into you? When I say fellow servants, I don't mean you know, people, I, you know, I get so much joy from serving them. No, I'm talking about people that they look at your life, they're in your life, and they're able to do a few things. Here's, here's the first thing that fellow servants can do. Number one, they relate. We need fellow servants in our lives to relate. You ever just needed someone to just say, I feel you, right? I know what you're going through. I don't fully know, but it's that gift of understanding. If you're going to serve Jesus, you need some fellow servants in your life that can just come to you and maybe not say much, but I'm with you. I feel you. In fact, the way that he describes Tychicus, I love the, the, this guy that he's going to send to this church to describe um, what's going on with Paul. Just the language he uses about this fellow servant, Tychicus. He says he's going to come and he's going to make all the news known about me to you this fellow servant. And then he says about Tychicus that uh, it's in verse eight that he's also gonna come to the church to know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. That goes a long way. Sometimes it's not that in our exhaustion that we need new answers, we just need new comfort. We just need someone to come alongside and know our circumstance. Okay, and husbands, we're called to do that with our wives. Dwell with your wives with understanding. But wives, Sometimes you just need another wife to do what's really hard for your husband to do. But it's a gift when you can get another wife to go, oh, you, you flipped out last week too? <laughs> I 
Did you curse? <laughs> me too, you know? You need some me too friends. You with me? You see, fellow servant, it goes a long way when you just get someone who goes, oh, I can weep with you. I can weep with you. I feel what you're feeling. You're comforted by somebody just knowing, someone understanding. You also need fellow servants not just to relate, but you also need fellow servants to refresh, man, to refresh. Just, that, just the word, ref- there's some words that the, you, you read them and just they make you feel a certain way, like moist. Like, I don't like that word. <laughs> you know what's a new one? I discovered this last week. I, didn't li- I, le- I learned last week I don't like a word. So don't ever, you're, I know one of you are going to come up to me afterwards and say it to me on purpose, but it's the word amalgamation. You ever heard that word? Someone the other day was like, it's just an amalgamation. I'm like, what did you just say? <laughs> like, it's amalgamation. I'm just like, stop. Okay, anyway. Now, I'm going somewhere. On the other side of this, there's some words that they're just refreshing. There's something about the word refresh that's like, it's like a cool glass of water. It's like, it's like chipotle on an empty stomach. It's just... <laughs> Refresh. And, and the reason why that's so appealing is for some of us, we know what it's like to need a refresher because we get stale, right? And so what do we need? Sometimes, you know, it's like websites. If you're on a website too long, sometimes it just kind of, you ever had that? It just glitches up and you click the refresh button. And you need friends in your life that can come into you and they can just click that refresh button. They could take what's stale, and the Bible says they can stir you up into loving good works. I love the way that Proverbs says this. This is biblical. Proverbs says it this way. Um, Throw it up for me, Mike, my boy. The generous soul will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Hey, it's great that God has been using you to refresh others. When's the last time you were refreshed by someone? Do you have friends in your life that can return the favor? Do you have friends in your life that can refresh you as you are refreshing others. Um, I like to call these friends Sabbath friends. Sabbath friends. You know, we all have, like, servant friends. It's good to have friends that you serve with. But a Sabbath friend is the best. You know what the point of Sabbath is, right? Sabbath is a day, Exodus tells us this, that God gave the Israelites the Sabbath, for in the sixth day the Lord made the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day, what did he do? He rested. He was refreshed. That good afternoon siesta, you know? That's the idea here. You need Sabbath. The best Sabbath friends are the friends that come over and you can just be. You ever have, you have those? Those are the best. Because most of the time throughout your week, you got to do, you got to serve, you got to Martha. You got to get the plate out. You got to, how's it going? You got to have your best face on. You need some friends that you don't have to clean your house up for. Amen? We need that. We need Sabbath friends in our lives. Because there's other friends, they're not Sabbath friends, they're law friends. There's things we got to do. Fellow servants, they can be Sabbath friends. They can not just relate with you, but the blessing of having a Sabbath friend with whom you can just rest and be refreshed. And then also we need fellow servants to refuel us, to refuel us. Um, again, as we are pouring out, who's pouring in? As you're running on empty, who's filling you up? Now, we first see fellow servants. Check this out. I'm going to point two. We got time left. Come on. New record, point two. Write this down. Number two is fellow prisoners. You got to have fellow prisoners on your fellowship. You got to have them aboard, fellow prisoners. Paul goes on to say in verse 10 that Aristarchus is my fellow prisoner, and he greets you along with Mark. And and look, he goes through this list of other guys that haven't just been with him in his public ministry, but now they're with him in his private misery. 
fellow prisoners. Um, the scriptures say it this way. In Proverbs 17, verse 17, it says, A friend loves at all times, but there's a brother that's born for adversity. Prison friends. And right now you're going, oh, I got those. <laughs> oh, I got, oh, that was kind of friendships. Yeah, I, there's this guy I went to jail with. We were, oh, it was great. Now, by fellow prisoners, Paul is not talking about people that he's run amok with, you know. He's talking about a bunch of guys that as they have set their hearts to follow Jesus, no matter their cost and no matter where, they, where, they get, where it gets them, that they're going to stick together as a reflection of the fact that God sticks with them. This is a lost art in the church. I understand why there is covenant membership, and that is a, a growing trend back in the church today. There's covenant membership because so many Christians are consumer-minded. And so we as Americans, we love to keep our options open. The second that you front me, you do wrong on me, you're not good to me, I'm out the door. We need more friendships like David and Jonathan who made a covenant. And their souls were knit together. This is true friendship, not just superficial. We love at all times. We're friends. Love you, love you. A true friend is the one you can be like, man, I kind of hate you right now. If I'm honest... I'm kind of struggling with, but the basis of our friendship is not how we feel about each other. It's the fact that God has called us together to do life together no matter what the cost. And that's really where God begins to work to do what we always say friendship's for, which is sharpening your character, right? That's what friends do, sharpen in the hard times. Not just in the high times, but the hard times. They sharpen. Now, come on, we love that verse. Oh, man, he's a sharpening brother. One man sharpens the other. He just sharpens me. Come, like... Since when does sharpening have anything to do with, like, pillows and comfort? Like, it's sharpened. It's like, ow! That's sharp. And through the sharpening, it's like that sandpaper smoothing that's happening. And, and listen, the, the product on the other side, like, um, maybe some of our, our married couples that have stuck with it, you know that it gets hard. It gets difficult. But God uses the discomfort, Right? And you come out on the other end, as dark as the tunnel may be, you stick with it. You're faithful to God's promises. You're faithful to God's plan. And you say what I think it was Ruth Bell Graham said, divorce, never. Murder, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I'm not going to count that one off the table. Why? Because it's a covenant, right? Because till death do us part. Why? I'm not going to forsake you. Till death do us part. That's good. Till I kill you do us part. Um, don't write that down. Um, we'll edit the podcast. Um, it's a covenant. And the idea of covenant is I want to reflect, just as Christ loves the church and he's never going to abandon and leave the church, we stick with it. Not just in public, but even in the prison. We need more friendships that look like that. We're talking about marriage, but let's talk about friendship again. We need more friendships like that. And for some of you, the reason why you, you haven't even stepped into the entry-level experience of this kind of friendship, of someone who's a not just a friend, but a brother born for the day of adversity. I, you know, I think one of the, the most paralyzing things that was keeping me from denying myself and following Jesus as an 18-year-old was my friend group. To follow Jesus meant that I had to give up some real close proximity. Now, that doesn't mean I could never talk to them. It was just where I was at. The friends I was around, there was no hope in me influencing them. Gravity had that force to pull me down. And it was so hard to give it up. As Jesus won me over to himself, 
He's traded friends in my life for brothers. And the Lord knew that two years after coming to Christ, my mom would pass away, go home with be the Lord, go home be with the Lord, that I would get married three months after. And he knew that what I needed on my wedding day was not friends. I needed brothers to stand by my side when I was having a really hard time getting married without my mom there. And, but I had brothers who weren't just loving, but they were born for the day of adversity. Fellow, do you have fellow prisoners? A fellow prisoner is someone, listen, who's not just aware of your public persona, but they're aware of your private prisons. Let's talk about it this way. We all have a public persona that we show up to church with every Sunday. And just naturally, listen, I mean, I think it's a, probably this like um, coping mechanism, this security mechanism we have where naturally no one is really fully themselves. In fact, those are always the people, I love those kind of people who are like always themselves all the time. You're like, are they always like that? They're like, yeah. Some people are like that. They're just like, this is me. How's it going? But there's a truth to the matter that no matter what your public persona is, there is a reality of the, of the private prisons that you face when no one's watching. The private prisons. So, so Paul is saying, these guys are with me in prison. Um, the prison, let's, let's look at it metaphorically, it could represent a dark and difficult place. We come to church on Sunday, we got our persona. How's it going? Good morning. It's the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. <laughs> Smile, worship. And then you leave and you're, you're trapped, not just in what's entrapping you, but you're trapped in your isolation. And that's not the way that God would have it be. God would not have you live a double life. It's called hypocrisy. God would call you out of that life. And you know what the gospel does? The gospel is the call of God to be free, to be the mess that we are. I want us to be the kind of community where you can be who you are. And if anybody condemns you for being who you are, it's probably because they got things about them that they don't want you to know. That doesn't mean that, listen, that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't change. I know some of you guys, you guys are like, wait, 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 we got to change. No, come on. You know the saying that Jesus accepts us as we are, but he loves us too much to keep us that way. He's going to transform our lives, but he's not going to do that alone. A fool, the Bible says, isolates himself and rages against all wise counsel. That's where sin thrives, in the dark, in the difficult. So we do things like men's fellowship. We do these, these events, not because we've got to make up the time to have fun, because we know that Satan will win in an isolated community. But we're better together than we could ever be apart. So we, we step into fellowship in a deeper way than just superficial public personas. But through the gospel, we're able to experience Galatians 6.2, which says this. It says, bear one another's burdens. Here's a great vision for our church. We all got them. And the tendency is to go, man, with my burden, well, I've heard it said, it's not in the Bible, but everyone says that you, you know, you have a God who will never give you what you cannot handle. He'll never give you too much that you can't carry. Nonsense. God not only will give you too much that you can't carry, but God will give you so much that you need to be carried. He will. In fact, this, this language that Paul's using, bear one another burdens, in the Greek, it actually means, we could translate it, give one another piggyback rides. 
bear one of the burdens is not just let me take what's heavy. It's get on my back and let's walk through this journey together because you can't do it alone. And it's not good for you to be alone. Bear one another's burdens. How can we bear one another's burdens if we're hiding our burdens? How can, how can we experience transformation in the private prisons that we're walking in? Whatever your private prison is, maybe it's a struggle with depression. You put on a fake smile every Sunday, but you're really struggling to have the joy of the Lord. Maybe it's a struggle of inadequacy and insecurity, and so you put on that smile because deep down you're overcompensating for does, do these people accept me and like me and love me? Maybe your private prison is a struggle with trust in the character of God because of how difficult your life has become. But you can't tell anybody that you actually struggle to believe the faithfulness of God because they'll look at you different in your mind. Maybe your struggle is the dark and difficult place of repeated sin. That you keep telling yourself, I'll do better next time, I'll do better next time, I'll do better next time. And what started in sin has now blown up into a prison of shame. And you're like, I can't say a word. I can't, I gotta just fight this battle alone. No, you don't. Far be it. Far be it from the church of Jesus Christ to be filled with a bunch of isolated, shameful people. We have no time to live in shame. Jesus has set us free. And his freedom, it leads us not just to be in relationship with him, but it calls us out of our private prisons to be who we are so that God could actually transform us the way he promised. In Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church. He didn't say, I will build isolated, individualistic Christians. It's a community project. Amen? Bear one another's burdens. And then lastly, lastly, we see that Paul also had fellow workers. Fellow workers. Um, this is also so huge. He says that these men that are with him, he says they are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God in verse 11. Fellow workers who are of the circumcision. And... Um, we know that Paul was a laborer for the kingdom. I love this. Um, this is so huge. So let's just back up for a second. I'm, I'm distracted right now because I skipped over something I wanted to say, but I'm learning to be self-controlled and stay on time. So are you proud of me? Good. Okay. <laughs> Hallelujah. Okay. Um, fellow servants, people that as you're pouring out, as you're serving, you need people to relate, to refresh, and to refuel. In your fellowship, you also need fellow prisoners who don't just know your public persona, but they know about your private prisons. They, like Jonathan, can show up to David, your David, in your difficult time, and they can strengthen your hand in God, okay? They can help bear your burden. And then, Paul says, you also need fellow workers. This is the vision at the end of the day. Uh, we always get back to this, right? This is how God works, that God is doing a work in our lives. He's doing a work in our community because he's got a bigger vision than just our community, He's always up to something behind the scenes. And a lot of times we just go, God, this is what you're doing in my life. And the vision God always gives us is this. I'm doing something in your life because I want to do something through your life. So I want to work in Solus Church in such a way that we become the kind of community that's kind of like a city on a hill. So that the surrounding world looks on and they go, I want what you have. I want that kind of unity despite your racial background or your socioeconomic background. I want the joy that you have. I want the authenticity that you have. The, the world is lacking it. But when we let our light shine... They come to glorify Jesus. And so that, that's what Paul is getting at here. So we also have fellow workers. And this is the vision that Jesus has for the church, that it would spill out, it would spill over, um, that the church, that we would be those that are laboring for his kingdom. 
This is a vision that we certainly see in the Gospel of Matthew. Can you throw that up? I think that's the order, Matthew. Okay, so Jesus, we see in Matthew 9, he says that he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, this is where, um, this is where mission starts. It starts with compassion. So we learn to see our neighbors the way that God sees them. We learn to see our colleagues, our, our what is it called when you go to school with someone? Classmate. And it was a big, like, theological Greek word, you know. Um, we learn to see our family members. Listen, we, we have, Jesus gives us his heart and his eyes to see those around us as not just our neighbors, not just frustrating people. We don't see them as enemies. We see them, in a sense, as victims of sin. And we have compassion on them. And we look at them, and we see our neighbors and our family, and we go, they're helpless. The problem is because they're sheep that have been disconnected from the shepherd, Jesus. And that, that's what's broken in their hearts. And so Jesus sees the world that way. He sees South Florida that way. He sees your workplace that way. He sees your neighborhood that way. He sees my neighborhood that way. And so what does he say next to the disciples? He said, the harvest is plentiful. Okay? The, the, the harvest is there. There's great opportunity lying ahead, but the problem is often that the workers are few. Then he says, ask the Lord of harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You know, what's funny is Jesus told the disciples to pray that, that God would send out workers into this harvest. I wonder if that was Jesus' way of getting them to warm their hearts up for mission, because they would be the ones that he sends out, right? He says, pray that God would send people out. They're praying, and the Lord says, okay, go. And they're like, oh, I was praying for someone. I was praying for missionaries. I was expecting some guy to show up like, hello, I'm the missionary that you've been praying for. And that's not how it goes. This great window of opportunity, Jesus seizes it, not by sending some uber-qualified special missionary pastor guy, but at the end of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus commissions his disciples and he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Guess what? You were the laborers you were praying for. And this is still God's vision. But sadly, I think God's vision also still sees that there is a plentiful harvest that still has a lack of laborers. Still today in the church, it's not a lack of opportunity. If we could only see the open doors of opportunities to work for the kingdom in our community. The problem is often that we overlook opportunity and we discount ourselves as the missionary. Fellow workers for the kingdom, um, I think the main reason why there's a lack of laborers in the harvest I think a major reason why we don't see more people coming to Christ is because what we have done today in the church is we have let the pastors hog the ministry. Laborers. We're all laborers. We're all called. You know what you need to be called? Compassion for someone. How do I reach someone? Care for them. And, and so today, here's what we have, okay? Now, I don't want to discount any of these, but when it comes to kingdom work, advancing the kingdom of God, there's generally three, you could say, um, kingdom styles or, or not kingdom styles, but like three strategies or methods. And not, none of these are to be rejected. And some of these are very effective methods of advancing the kingdom uh, globally. I mean, I think of one example I would call event evangelism, event evangelism. That's a very effective way, certainly, to reach mass numbers of people. We see that in the Bible, the book of Acts. It was event evangelism, uh, the masses coming to Christ. Um, in fact, just this weekend, um, prominent and, and just anointed evangelist Greg Laurie held a harvest crusade. I just wanted you to see this picture. Look at that. How awesome is that? Um, in two days, they had 36,000 people in attendance, 
3,300 professions of faith. Um, combined with the week before, in, two, in, in a whole week, they saw 5,500 new believers. Heaven's clapping. We probably should do that, too. Yeah. That's worth clapping. You know, like, wow. Event evangelism. Now, this is a way. The problem is we've made this way the only way. Oh, oh Greg Laurie, a worker for the kingdom. What are you? I'm a mom. I'm a banker. I'm a barista. I'm a student. Not just evangelism that's at an event that we let pastors only handle. The other way is, um, I would call it cold call evangelism. Here's another, again, another method. But cold, some of you guys are totally familiar with cold calls from your job. But cold call evangelism is random stranger on the street, hey, can I pray for you? I have an offer for you. His name is Jesus, right? I mean, generally, it's kind of out of nowhere. And God, we see that in the Bible. God uses that too. But I think what we see in the Bible is a much more normal way of the church being on mission. That's not this, always this great event on a Tuesday. What are you doing evangelism? Tuesday at 6.30. Or Sunday morning at 10.30. But what we see in the scriptures is what Jesus is looking to do is to raise up laborers who see evangelism and gospel proclamation as a way of life, right? We could call this network evangelism. There's this thing called social networks. Okay, uh, when I was a kid, there was this great social network. It was called Going Outside. Okay. So that's what I'm talking about here, human being interaction. And there's a network kind of evangelism. And so th this kind of evangelism would lead you to understand that going to preach the gospel, go back to that verse, going to preach the gospel, it's not a matter of relocating. It's not a matter of, okay, I, to be a missionary, I have to get on a plane and go somewhere. But to go, it's to respond to myself being sent. So it's seeing yourself as already a sent individual so that, listen, you can understand that you can actually, as a missionary for God, you can go where you are. You can go into your neighborhood. A better way to maybe understand this is going into all the world. What about going to all of your world? What is the sphere of influence that God has sent you into? Where are your mission fields? And here's a couple examples of some kingdom mission fields that God may have sent you into. Maybe it's a familial field. That's the question of who's in your family. What about a geographical field? Who are your neighbors? That's evangelism. What's your neighbor's name? When's the last time you had them over for dinner? And let them ask some questions about Jesus. Or you ask them some questions. Or you, you help them out. You serve them. Your neighbors. Vocational. Where do you work? Who do you work with? Recreational evangelism, who do you hang out with? Who do you ball out with? Okay, whatever it may be. Commercial evangelism, where, where, do, you, where do you frequent? What shops do you frequent? Who do you see there? What, what, what cashier do you see on a regular basis? What this kind of evangelism does, number one, is it doesn't outsource the ministry to one person. Number two, it recognizes the sovereignty of God to place you where you were, not on accident, but on purpose. It's not an accident that your neighbors are who your neighbors are. It's not an accident that your, you might feel this way, it's not an accident that your family is who it is. It's not an accident that you work where you work. It's not an accident that you play where you play, that you shop where you shop. The book of Acts tells us this, that God has pre-appointed every single person's dwelling on this earth in hope that they might seek him. So seeing yourself as sent to this kingdom field, and then we close with this big idea as I invite the worship team up, that what Paul is saying about this is that you're not meant to labor alone. You're not meant to go into those fields alone. And so I love that. Paul says, I'm not alone here. This is a co-laboring effect. So as you identify those different fields, I love this African proverb says, if you want to go fast, go alone. Maybe you can reach up. Maybe you can do evangelism crusade. Boom, you get a bunch of people saved. But the goal is not fast. The goal is far. 
The goal is not some, the goal is all. Not just addition, but multiplication. If we want to do that, we got to go together. It's finding some people in your life that can ask you, who can I pray for in your life that you're seeking to come to know Jesus? It's co-laboring together. Um, And then I want to close with this verse that I think ties it all together. It says this in Proverbs. It says that, that a man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So there's a tendency, I think, to look at a a message like this and these characteristics of a friend and, and start to go, God, I don't have any fellow servants. I don't have any fellow prisoners. I don't have any fellow workers. And listen, we certainly should pray. If you don't have these kinds of friends, pray, certainly, that God would provide these kinds of fellows in your ship. Be a part of home fellowships would be a great place to get that, okay? Be a part of the church, great way to get that. But there's also a sense in which Proverbs would say, the person who's saying, God, provide those friends, maybe they should start to go, God, how can I be this kind of friend? Maybe it's not, God, where's my fellow servants, fellow prisoners? Where's my fellow workers? With whom is there next to you? Right in your plain sight that you need to shift your perspective instead of being someone who's waiting to be served, who can you look to and be this kind of friend to? And here's why. Because there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, right? There's a friend and his name is Jesus. And when you find in Jesus, first and foremost, all that you're longing to find in people, you can be aware of your needs and not be needy. You can have a contentedness of heart because you see the way that Jesus, I love what he says to his disciples, you know this, right? In John 15, he says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And that's the message of the gospel, that we, we, we are far, apart from God, that we are far from friendship with God. The Bible says that through sin, through the love of this world, that our natural propensity and, and, and direction is that we are enemies of God. We're hostile to God. Our companionship is broken. We talked last week about that line of communication that's been severed through our sin. But what God has done through Christ is he's made the way for you and I to know God the way Moses knew God. How? The Bible says that Moses knew God as a friend, face to face. So let's evaluate that as we close out. How's your friendship with God? Jesus calls you friends. Are you knowing him in such a way that's face to face? Let's close and worship him.